Hey, welcome everyone to the Reflex Blues Show. I'm your host, Donovan Beery. Once again, recording here from Omaha. And this time I have Tim Lapatino from the Windy City of Chicago. Tim, how are you doing? I am doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and you've got, I, I guess, I mean, you, you are like a, a pop culture designing machine of some sort. I'm trying to be. Yeah, you know, it's funny. That is the place that I've sort of landed at this point. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen you've got, you've got, you've done recently, you've had a Pac-Man exhibit that you've, in a museum of some sort, you've got a Pac-Man book that we're here to talk about. You're probably, probably your best-selling book, I assume, is the Art of Atari one that came out a few years ago. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, and then you've also, you've also actually designed some action figure packaging I've seen as well. And, and a, a watch band with the infamous Pac-Man 256 level. Which, which is also highlighted in the, in, the, in the upcoming book, Pac-Man, Birth of an Icon. It's a weird journey that I've taken from being sort of a, you know, sort of more rank and file, you know, packaging and, uh, you know, identity designer working at design firms to sort of digging into the pop culture world that, you know, I sort of grew up with. So it, it's, a, it's a crazy, you know, it's a crazy set of circumstances and sort of different things that I've done, but uh, it's a fun place to to be. What were these circumstances? Like, how does that go happen where you go from regular packaging to Atari and Pac-Man books? Well, you know, I, it kind of, if I back up a little bit, it kind of started, you know, my background is not just in design, it's more in journalism. You know, I started off as a writer and then doing information graphics for newspapers and, you know, magazines and things like that. But, you know, in the, in the late nineties, early two thousands, I really started falling in in college with, uh, you know, more of the design crowd. Right. And then it's, it's kind of weird to be, to be a writer and then also a designer because in, in the writing world, you know, in the journalism world, it was, Oh, you're one of those graphics people, you know, whereas in the design world, you're like, Oh, you're one of those people who writes things, you know? And, and so it was, it's always kind of a strange place to be, but in the dot-com days, you know, I got my first design job doing, you know, web design, which, you know, today I would never touch because it's far beyond, you know, you know, sort of my skill set. but, you know, I sort of fell into design but I, you know, I kept all these, you know, I kept the writing going in small ways, whether I was doing copywriting or, uh, you know, occasionally I was doing feature writing once in a while. But, you know, for the most part, I was, you know, really just an, another, uh, you know, design firm designer doing a lot of identity design, doing a lot of some packaging, but a lot of print. Print and identity was sort of my thing. And then I got to the point where I was running my own studio in like 2000 you know, 2009, 2010, uh, with a partner of mine, he was out in Los Angeles, I was in Chicago, and we got a chance to dip our toes in video games, we worked with some companies that were doing events and stuff like that. So we did some video game focused design, whether it was logos and things like that, you know, being sort of tied into Los Angeles a little bit, we got to do a little bit of pop culture stuff. But it also it also got me to focus a little bit more on the writing. You know, now that I was on my own boss, I, you know, like everybody else in the 2000s, I had a blog, right? You know, and I get to write about the things that I was really interested in. And one of those was, uh, you know, old school video games, Atari. And I wrote a blog post about the package design for the old Atari 2600 games, just because it was an interest of mine. You know, I was interested in Atari. I was interested in how this artwork was really influential for me. I mean, I would stare at these boxes 
you know, earlier before, you know, you could just look everything up online. The place you found out about video games, you either went to a store and you looked at the boxes. Maybe there was a video game magazine, but you know, for the most part, that was your interaction with a game before actually buying it. And that was super, you know, influential for me, both as a, you know, an artist, but also as a, you know, a designer, just sealing those visuals. And I sort of took up the cause of digging into knowing who were these artists and who were these designers that were behind these games. And that, you know, that was, that was sort of the first thing, you know, I sort of pulled the rabbit out of the hat and jumped down the rabbit hole to mix rabbit metaphors. And this was because Nintendo Power was the first magazine I knew of for video games, but the Atari precedes it by, by years. Yeah. You know, and I think my first video game machine was the, we had a ColecoVision at home. And, and I don't think it ever gained the, I thought it was better than the Atari, but it never gained the widespread use, I guess, as, as you'd want to say. And my friend had an Activision, but the thing is, the gra- people forget the graphics were so bad on all of those up until probably the Nintendo, they were so bad that you would have to have massive art that made the game look exciting on the front or to, so that they'd be like, oh, that's an alligator, that green blob. <laughs> yeah, you know, I th- we look at them now and be like, wow, you're like, what, you know, what am I even looking at? But, you know, I, even though console games, the graphics were not as good as, you know, arcade versions, arcades had better processors, you know, in general. And that was a big selling point when, you know, consoles got to the point where they could sort of emulate, you know, arcade style graphics. But, you know, the graphics weren't horrible. I think the thing was just, it was part, and this is what I sort of get in with the book. I think this was an interest for me is saying that, you know, it's very different now. It's like you buy a game and sure, maybe you buy an actual boxed game and you have art on the artwork, but it doesn't, serve the same purpose you know in 1977 in 1982 you know you had a game you had game graphics but the artwork wasn't just to oh buy this game it's really exciting and it's a bait and switch i think i think that's an idea that like you know people who didn't live through that era might think of but really it was sort of about completing you know it was to get you to buy the game sure but it was about completing this circle of the experience of setting the stage for you know, you're playing a game like Adventure, where you're basically a rectangle moving around and there are dragons and there are castles. But the idea that the box art was sort of an added level of storytelling that sort of set the mood and it set the the tone for what you were going to see. So then when you're looking at your rectangle, you're, you're a, you know, you're an elf or you're some sort of knight or something, you know, you sort of brought something to the table visually and in your imagination and sort of filled that gap. So like the art was actually doing double duty, right? It wasn't just marketing. It was also a bit of storytelling at a time when there really wasn't a whole lot of storytelling in the game experience. And that was that was due to the processing because in your in your book, I was the, the birth of an icon with Pac-Man, you said even then, and Pac-Man people don't consider now to be some great processor, like some great emulator. Like now people would be like, well, you could put that on a phone pretty easy or like, a, you know, I mean, your phone has how much more processing power, even your watch, maybe even your calculator. But you said when they ported it down to the 2600, it was like 100 times the processing power was in the arcade machine. And so when we're talking about the Atari 2600, it it had a little processor. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, not to get too into the weeds of the technical stuff, and also because that's really not my area, but my understanding is, is that as soon as the 2600 was put out, it was kind of old. 
you know, the processor was old. But I think the genius in that console was what creative programming took with that hardware, you know, and they were able to be really flexible. So from the beginning of the life, you know, cycle of that of that console in 1976 to the time the last game rolled off the factory floor for the 2600 in 1990. Oh, man. Yeah, that thing had a long shelf life and people continued to squeeze things out of it. You went from playing tank which you've got two tanks shooting each other you know in this blocky play field to attempting uh, a version of double dragon you know on the 2600 which isn't great but the idea that programmers found a way found all kinds of ways around the limitations of the hardware and you know but i th- i think you think about 1970 you know the late 1970s where the 2600 comes out it's this odd thing because it's not the first video game console but it's the first popular one and they had to think about how do we communicate what this thing is you can play games on your tv and for me like that that's an idea people were worried oh it's gonna if i plug it in it's gonna destroy my tv or it's going to <laughs> you know it's, I, mean, no, I know like, i know i know it's, it sounds ridiculous <laughs> now but sure well, it was brand new, you know, oh, it's going to turn my kids into zombies and they're going to stare at the TV. You know, there was all these concerns. And, you know, I think you and I, you know, as designers, we think about this as a design problem. Okay, well, how do you communicate this? How do you even explain, you know, we have a tennis game, you know, in quotes, and you've got one paddle, you know, rectangular paddle on the side, one on the other side. So how do we tell people that's tennis? How do we make it? How do we map it to something that they know? And so you go back to the box art and you create this, you know, this tennis where you get people grunting and sweating and swinging the racket and you give people sort of a context for these games because we, you watch TV, you didn't play it. And that kind of blew people's minds. And so it was very much, you know, some of this I think was intentional. Some of it was just the way forward for them. But the idea that this box art had to do all this heavy lifting conceptually, visually, marketing wise, and storytelling wise to get people into that mode where, okay, now we're comfortable with, you know, playing video games. And to be fair, they weren't, they, they knew like when people bought it, when you flip to the back, they, I believe I haven't seen a box in a long time, but if I remember right, you flip to the back, it showed the actual gameplay on there. So it's not like, so yes, they have this great cover, but you flip to the back and they're like, this is what, this is what the tennis court really looks like. Right, right. And it's not trying to be, you know, deceptive or, you know, a bait and switch kind of thing. I mean, that was very much how it is. But, you know, I think the thing that's really interesting for me in this time when you're thinking about whether it's design or marketing of video games, there wasn't like a playbook. You know, there wasn't a playbook with of how to do this. They would show one teeny tiny little screen where now we're like, show me the in-game footage, show me the, you know, the cut scenes. There was not, you know, Atari was sort of making up how they would market and you know and and design pro- things like product packaging advertising uh as they went along and so for me and in figuring you know sort of i was really curious about this because you think about all the logos you know as a logo designer you know i think you're probably in the same boat here you think about the nike swoosh you know the the apple the apple logo you know all these sort of pantheon you know like you know mythical corporate design of the 70s and 80s and the atari logo is absolutely one of those and uh you know i was really curious well we talk about you know rob janoff and uh i forget who designed the nike swoosh i can't remember her name now we talk about these designers and and they're well known you think paul you know you know you got you got rand who's designing the ibm logo but no one and no one was talking about you know this was now 2000 
14, you know, people weren't talking about who designed the, the Atari logo. And I, I consider this up there with, you know, one of the iconic designs of the, you know, 70s and 80s. So I started digging in, you know, and I wanted to find out, okay, I had a name, this guy, George Opperman, and I started doing some research. You know, I think it's really interesting because in these fan communities of things like, you know, classic video games, there's a lot of people with a lot of knowledge. And when the companies have either gone defunct or they have, you know, not really been good caretakers of their history, fans have sort of stepped in to do some of that. You know, so I started talking to people and digging into research and going to libraries and started finding things out about George Opperman, who designed the Atari logo. And it turned out that he was very instrumental. He came in from outside of Atari, you know, he was hired first as a consultant to design this logo. And then he came in house as the, you know, the overall creative director. So he was an illustrator, he was a logo designer, he was a painter and an art director. And he really set the tone for Atari, you know, even before they got purchased by Warner Communications, you know, of what, what their design would be. Cause he came in from the outside as this corporate designer, you know, sort of set, gave them a level of professionalism and a very specific look and feel with illustration that no other video game company really had. Because, you know, oftentimes you have a bunch of engineers or programmers or even marketing people who are like, maybe it should be like this. And these guys had a very specific point of view visually and design wise that, you know, I think is worth documenting. I mean, it, it is in the past, but it's not that far back. It's still it's still somewhat recent. It's it's, it's in most it's in. It's still in, you know, our generation, I guess, as you would say. Yeah, totally. And what was it that brought you to Pac-Man specifically? Or is, or is that, or, or, or was it Atari and then someone just said, hey, we want you to do some Pac-Man stuff. But it seems like you've been doing quite a bit of Pac-Man stuff. So, so what was it that brought you to say, like, you know, out of all these games I want to talk about, this is the one I want to move forward with? Well, I think for me, I mean, Atari was, you know, the Art of Atari book started as a project, you know, I just, I just wanted to see, you know, I wanted those answers for myself, right? I wanted to dig into the art and the design and no one had done it. So it was really just scratching an itch for myself. And that turned out to be that like, you know, other people were curious about the same thing and the book did pretty well. So, you know, naturally people are like, well, you're going to do another video game book. And I thought about it and I, I, you know, I really thought like, okay, what is the property that is really intriguing to me? Well, obviously it's art of ColecoVision. That's the next one. <laughs> that is, that's how I see it. Maybe, maybe art of Activision. I mean, there's, there's a whole series here. Wait, you know, people have asked me about that and uh, you know, and I have to like, be the bearer of bad news in terms of like, you know, commercial viability on these things. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't think the, uh, you know, the art of Intellivision is, is a mass market product. Yeah. That but, is, uh, that, that's a good thing. That's probably wise. Yeah. I, you know, and, and for me, it's like you spend, you know, a year, a couple of years on projects like this, you've got to have some love, you know, some real deep interest in it. You know, I'm not going to, you know, put a couple of years of time into something that I'm not like, you know, personally, like it's, it, you know, I'm fascinated by it. it's going to scratch an itch. So with Pac-Man, I'm in my 40s here. So it's, you know, Pac-Man, I can never remember a time when Pac-Man wasn't around, right? You know, I, my earliest memories, I remember going to Pizza Hut and sitting down and you got a Tron cabinet, you've got a, a Pac-Man cocktail table, you know, kind of the sit down ones that the screen is sort of horizontal, you know, look down on it. And I just always remember Pac-Man being around. I watched the cartoon when I was a kid. Uh, you know, so it was it was something that was in there in the zeitgeist. And as the 40th anniversary of Pac-Man's, you know, which was, uh, two, you know, last year started coming around, I started thinking more and more about that. 
I was really curious about the history of the game because it's a Japanese game brought over to the United States. It was moderately successful in Japan, but it became this behemoth, this cultural moment in the, in the United States and in the West. And I was just like, that's so weird. You know, and I, you know, it was just a question that I wanted to answer for myself. And the other thing is, is that the company that brought Pac-Man, you know, Pac-Man when he was in Japan to the United States was Midway Games that was here in like the Chicagoland area. So for me, it's really interesting. You know, when you just start digging into video game history, like I have, you start to see, okay, there's a lot of things going on the West Coast. Naturally, that's where, you know, Atari was there. You see things happening on the East Coast, you know, close to places like, you know, MIT. Not a lot is written about Chicago, but Chicago was this crazy hub of of pinball and coin-operated games and then, you know, arcade games. So I was very curious, who were the people that brought this to the United States? Why was it successful in a way that it was just not successful in, you know, in Japan where it was created? And I wanted to know some of the story. You know, I, for me, it's really interesting to look at this also from a design perspective, saying, you know, what did they do? To Pac-Man, I, I we can talk about that in a minute. But I, but for me, I really wanted to understand why was Pac-Man popular and why did it still persist. I, I remember I uh, a couple of years ago I went to my daughter's class when she was I think in first grade, you know, and it's like one of those career days. And it's like, well, what do you do? And I, you know, I said I'm a designer. I also write books about video games. And I said, how many of you guys know who Pac-Man is? And this was like a bunch of like five and six year olds, and all of their hands went up. And I was blown away by that because I was just thinking, why do they know who Pac-Man is? You know, surely they're not all the kids of video game parents, right? You know, it's just right. Pac-Man's just out there in the zeitgeist, you know? So I wanted to figure out why Pac-Man persists. So those are the questions that I wanted to answer in in writing this book. And for, and Tim, I think we're around the same age, but but for those younger, when, when you said Pac-Man was everywhere, I, I was just remembering you go to like Shopco, which also wasn't even around. It'd be like the that was like the Walmart that was in our town. They would have just a couple video game machines that would be like by the cash register. You know, every every bar had video game machines. The skating rinks did. Like there were just coin operated machines everywhere, and every mall had a had a video game like a you know place with like 30, 40 games in it. So I don't think. Like I haven't seen a stand-up Pac-Man game in a store recently, but but when we were kids, they were they were in everywhere. Totally, totally. Well, and it's, that's the weird thing is you know people called it sort of you know in the early '80s they called it the video craze, the sort of the rise of arcade culture into the mainstream. And Pac-Man had a lot to do with that. You know, it was this very accessible game. You know, it wasn't a shooting game. It wasn't this aggressive, you know, crazy game. It wasn't something for outsiders. It was for anybody. You know, you could pick it up and play it very quickly. It doesn't mean you were going to, you know, it's, you weren't going to be great. It's this idea of like easy to learn, but difficult to master. But anyone could play it. And it was very appealing, not just to hordes of sweaty guys sitting in the, you know, arcades. But, you know, women were, you know, a huge market for Pac-Man once the things got rolling. And I think Pac-Man sort of became emblematic of that era. So you see those games everywhere, you know, and you also look at you, if you're a corner grocery store or you're a, you know, you're a mall, you're thinking, Hey, these kids are pumping quarters into this. Let's get one of these. I mean, we even read reports of uh, 
dentist's office. You know, hey, you want kids to come and get their teeth cleaned? Well, you know what? <laughs> if, you, if you have a Pac-Man game, you know, there you go. I mean, you know, and that was okay. It sort of broke this boundary of like what and where was, you know, was acceptable for video games. So Pac-Man machines were everywhere. I mean, they in the United States – you know, the figures that, you know, we found in our research was that uh, they sold almost 100,000 cabinets, you know, which may not sound like a lot, but we're not talking about video game console games. We're talking about, gig- you know, huge six foot tall, you know, arcade machines. And that was like the best selling game, you know, in the United States up to that point of all time. Yeah. And then and then you said that Miss Pac-Man actually outsold it by 20 percent or something. Yeah. And, and they didn't. And those other Pac-Man games, it's not like they disappeared. A lot of times they'd be sitting next to it. So you had like a couple hundred thousand of these just hanging out there. Totally, totally. And, you know, and I think Miss Pac-Man sort of rode on the coattails of Pac-Man while it was still fresh. I mean, it was barely a year later that uh, they released that game. and it, But it did something different to Pac-Man. It sort of changed the gameplay, changed the interaction, and gave it this sort of fresh branding. I mean, really, that's I think that's part of the genius of Midway is, you know, they could have just said, oh, it's Pac-Man 2, new mazes, different gameplay. But they decided, hey, you know what, we're going to take this character, this female character that uh, this is a longer story of how that game came to be. Yeah, but- and, it's, and, it's, and it's documented in the book, which is great. And by the way, I got to mention first, you mentioned earlier that it was Puckman in Japan. Yep. Is it true? Did they really change that name because they were afraid people were going to graffiti the the P and, and make it something other than Puckman? Yes, that was definitely a concern. Now, not everybody felt like that was the way, but they were definitely like, okay, you got teenage boys, you know, these little miscreants that may happen, you know, and they were thinking about this from a, you know, fa- a family sort of way. You got to think about these are old school you know, these are old school guys, right? You know, who yeah. are running the show and uh, which I, I appreciate. So yes, that, that is true. That is, I mean, I just love that story. I was like, that is great. Like that, that someone was worried about that and changed the name solely, solely to, because of graf- because of what they assumed would be graffiti everywhere. Right, right. You know, and, and I think that speaks also to what arcades were like. It wasn't like, you know, now you can go into like a Dave and Buster's or maybe a Barcade or even Chuck E. Cheese, where those places were a little more sanitized, where some of the reputation that arcades had in the late, late 70s and early 80s, they're a little sketchy. You know, there's some sketchy places. Yeah, and there's a lot of, I always forget, when, whenever we go back to that time period, there's a lot of cigarette smoke everywhere too, which is terrible, just terrible. Well, we're going to be right back with Tim Lapatino. All right, Tim. So like 10 years ago, I think it was, I probably, eh, maybe I, I went to the, you know, we go to antique stores or whatever. I don't remember what town I was in, but I found the, the 12 inch Pac-Man fever vinyl. And I've had it ever since then. This thing, I mean, this, this is, I assume what, when you talk about Pac-Man mania or whatever, it's, Yep. It's the fact there was a top 40 hit on the radio that they made an, into a full album and they don't do that. Like that's, that's rare. Yeah. You know, and I think the thing that's even weirder about it, I mean, we could talk for a long time about all the marketing that happened around Pac-Man he really became the first big video game kind of crossover property. But I think the thing is people assume, Oh, well, you know, you got a hit game. So you're going to make a record that goes with it. It was totally organic. You know, it's these two songwriters, these guys who are pop band, but, you know, they're really, their day job is writing jingles, you know, for radio and TV. And, you know, so they're they're kind of songwriters, right? And 
they had this idea, you know, whether it's them or their, you know, their sort of uh, their manager had this idea. Hey, you know, the kids are playing these Pac-Man games, but the way they tell it is that they, you know, they went into a bar, they went into a restaurant, and they saw people playing this game. Like, what is this thing about? And they got hooked on it, right? And they started just pumping quarters into it, and then they said, hey, you know, maybe we could write a song. And at the very least, this could be sort of an ad for us for our jingles, right? You know, this would be like, you know, hey, here's something we can put in the portfolio. I don't, I don't think they knew it was good. They, they weren't thinking it was going to be this massive radio played song. They were, I mean, they're just no. songwriters. They're like, we're just going to write this thing. Sure. Right, right. And they did. And then at first, you know, the the A&R guys are like, what is this? Like, we don't, we don't get this. But then quickly, you know, it, it filters down and there's this apocryphal story. I don't know if it's true. One of the record executives takes it home, the demo home to his kid who's a big Pac-Man player. He's like, dad, that's amazing. You have to do this. And they sign the deal. And this thing goes gangbusters, right? You know, and they had just tapped into this sort of cultural moment of this ascendance of Pac-Man right at the right time when it was like hitting teenagers and sort of the, the, you know, the arcade crowd. And of sort so this thing goes really well and the record companies, well, like, okay, you gotta, we gotta do an album here. And of course we want you to do all video game songs. Oh yeah. I mean, it was released as a single. I think yep. if you have the single, it's probably decent. If you have the album, the rest of the songs on this, cause I got the, I got the full 12 inch there. Uh -huh. um, they're not as good. No, they're, no. They, I mean, I mean, what is it? Froggy's lament. You know the defender. These are not. These are not classics. These are, no. these did not get radio airplay. No, you know, and I think that's one of those things where okay, a marketing guy's like, well, we need a whole album of these, and I think these guys are like, well, do you, you know, do you turn down the money or do you do this? And and I, you know, they went ahead and did it, and I'm sure it seemed like they gave it their best shot because it wasn't like let's focus group the most popular games and Frogger and Defender. Like they went in there, they went into the you know the arcades, and they're like, what are people playing? And they interviewed people, you know, just to get a sense of this. But it was still very wild west and kind of organic, and that's what I love about this era i mean some of it's bad sure you know it's it's you know froggy's lament is not the best song but i like the i, I like the fact that just make us some go ahead you know you, you see some cigar executive you know he's chomping a cigar and he's like yeah go make us some uh, other video game songs you know and, and they don't really care what they are you know so there's an organic nature to it and these guys are just like well let's try that I, and i love that wild westness and i think that surrounds pac-man because of how, you know, how early it was and, you know, how much the video game industry was not, you know, things were in form, you know, set in stone, right? How you marketed the game, how you designed the character. I mean, you look at Pac-Man licensed stuff. Pac-Man looks so many crazy different ways and stuff today. You know, if you and I were like, hey, we're going to go to Bandai Namco and we're going to release Pac-Man toothbrushes. Pac-Man looks a certain way. You can use this style guide. You know, you have to make sure it works this way. And, you know, there's all, the whole process you go through. Whereas these guys, you're like, all right, give us something Pac-Man. And, and Pac there's all kinds of crazy Pac-Man stuff. And I love how the book talks about the you you mentioned that and, and you document part of part of the thing is I mean it's a visual book you're a designer half of it's half of it's copy but the other half is these great artifacts that you that you've somehow been able to locate where it shows the original artworks and how it's kind of evolved because the puck man looked different than the pac man and then that evolved and then all of a sudden he had television and and it wasn't until he had the T Pac-Man had its TV show that they said no this is how Pac-Man looks going forward there's only one style. Before right. that, it was like, and then part of that is because the graphics we talk about with Art of Atari, the graphics on the 
game are so simple that the art different artists would just try to show like, well, this is what we want your imagination to think. Yeah, and I wonder some part of it is probably this sort of weird disconnect between, you know, Japan and the United States, where, you know, by the time Pac-Man comes out on the 2600, Pac-Man's not a thing in Japan anymore. And so they're like, you know, hey, we'll give you the license, you'll give us the money, but do what you want to do here, right? It wasn't like this global brand plan. Just cut us royalty checks. As long as the monthly royalty check shows up, you do what you need to do. (laughs) A hundred percent. So I like that. And I think that's fun. I mean, you know, if you're an IP owner these days, like you, you don't want to hear that, but I, I really like the idea and sort of the, the, the genesis for some of this happened when I was working on Art of Atari. Uh, I talked to the the artist Hiro Kimura, who designed the Atari 2600 Pac-Man packaging. And there were a couple different versions. He had a really flat version that marketing wanted so that it looked just like the game. Uh, you know, he did another version where Pac-Man's very spherical, you know, and he's fun. He's got sneakers. But then he he pulled out, you know, he sent me a bunch of slides and I was like, what is this? You know, and he showed me this artwork of this silvery airbrushed Pac-Man that had these long skinny legs. And I was like, this is crazy. What is this? And he's like, oh, this is my first version. You know, this is like my art, my round one of Pac-Man for the Atari 2600 that totally got rejected. And I had never seen that before. No one had actually ever seen that before outside of like Atari and Band and Namco. So Art of Atari was the the first place that that was ever published, which is really, really fun. And so, you know, when writing this Pac-Man thing, we went back and we talked more about that process and about how there was limited feedback, but there was some feedback, you know, his ghosts, you know, are also called the translation is also a monster. So his monsters looked kind of scary with teeth and stuff. It's not how you think of the ghosts, but you know, there was all this wiggle room for like visual interpretation, which I think is very rich for mining. And it's really, really interesting as a designer. And I think you probably get less of that now that the graphics on modern games, well, they, there is no interpretation. They, they're already that good. Right, right. I mean, there's no difference, right? I mean, yeah. Well, Tim, where do people go to find out more? And when, when does the book launch? I know the book, the book isn't quite out. I got a preview copy. But when, when, where do people go to get it? Yeah, so Pac-Man Birth of an Icon will be out uh, mid-July, or I'm sorry, July, mid, uh, I should get that right. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's August. All you've right. Been, you've been working on it a while. We've, we've all got, no, nobody knows what day that's, it is anymore that's with true. everything going on. Yeah, so uh, Pac-Man Birth of an Icon will be out in uh, October. October 19th is the current date, and it'll so it'll be in the U.S., but it'll be everywhere. We're, we've got translations in French and Italian, hopefully some more as well. So there, there will be a worldwide overall release, but people can pick it up. It'll be on Amazon. It'll be at big booksellers, also online. So, you know, quick Google search will get you to most places. And where do people go to find out more about your work if they want to follow you or see what else you're, you're up to? TimLapatino.com has got, you know, the most updated versions of the work that I'm doing now. Well, we'll be right back with Tim. I don't know if you know this. I'm also big into action figures. I mean, you can probably see some of the stuff I got nice. going on. What, what, what action figures are you working on now? So I, right now, so I just do packaging work for, as a freelancer for Super 7, right? So they do all the three and three quarter you know, sort of Star Wars style action figures. And it's such an interesting thing because, you know, they're kind of taking this old style of action figure with super limited, you know, articulation, but sort of digging into all these other pop culture properties. So all these things that, 
you know, you wanted an escape from New York action figure when you were a kid. Well, there wasn't one, but now there is, you know, and they're doing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in that style. So they're sort of like applying this style to all these different things. And then they're doing some sort of fancier six and seven inch action figures as well. And I've, I've even seen those have even started like Target's been carrying those, I think. They're kind of yeah. in the, in our Target, they're in the back aisle where it's all I t- I told my daughter. It's, oh, it's, I'm going to go check out the nerd aisle thing or whatever. Yeah, and, totally. and there's all that other stuff that's cool back there, but but I've seen them, I've seen them there. So that's the one figure I'm assuming most people who buy them don't even open the package because the package is as cool as the figure itself. Because the figures are purposely meant to kind of look not cool. I don't know how to word that properly. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, know, it's, I... it's it's a design choice to make them look like like the you know I have my original Boba Fett over here on the shelf, and it, it doesn't really look that cool after. 40 it looked real cool when i got it 40 years ago it doesn't look real cool now right you're they're kind of just sort of ignoring all the you know advances in laser scanning and you know tooling to, you know there's a sort of a, a zeitgeist right you know there's a sort of a style of action figure that's kind of these soft sculpts you know they're not trying to be you know perfectly accurate but they're trying to like get you to that place of what was it like to buy an action figure in like 1979 you know yeah, no, that's fantastic. Well, what's the one property you want to work on the most? Or now that Pac-Man's over, or is or is it or was that the only one you ever cared about? No, I you know, I, I think in terms of video games, I think I've sort of said the things that I want to say in terms of in a book, you know, in a book, but I am fascinated. I am continually fascinated with Tron, you know, both as an action figure property and also as a you know, as a visual guide, because I think there's so much interesting things. There's so much there in terms of like how we think about the internet and like the digital world of computers, right? You know, that I think Tron is is super interesting to deep dive in. And then my, my you know, my uh, pandemic thing is G.I. Joe, sort of digging back into G.I. Joe. You know, I was a G.I. Joe collector as a kid, but now they've got these really fancy six inch figures and Super 7's coming out with a line of, uh, you know, ultimate figures that are like high end collectibles. And it's just really interesting to see all of these things that we grew up with sort of coming back into, you know, either from a nostalgia play or they're really int- reintroducing them, you know, to, to new generations. Yeah. And I've got, I've, you know, I've got all the GI Joes are in the other room. That's the one thing I actually still have as a kid. Like I have all of them. I think most of the Star Wars figures, I really just have my Boba Fett. And I think I have a Yoda over there. But the GI Joes, I have too many of. So now when I see all the stuff come out, I'm like, I'm good. I, I got too, <laughs> I've got too many of the originals. Now, did you did you ever have the uh, aircraft carrier? My cousin did. Oh. You know, the problem was is the the USS flag was what you're talking about. Was it was it six or seven foot long? Yeah, I think it was seven feet. I had it actually. My parents, okay. that was the only thing that me and my three younger brothers, that was our combined present for that year. And this thing was monstrous. Yeah, my cousin had it, but he, you know, he was in an old house and they had the whole attic was converted into his bedroom. So there's a huge amount of space up there. Cause I was like, Mom, I need one. It's like, where are you going to put it? The thing's the size of your bed. Like, we don't have room in the house. You know, I don't know where you, where you kept yours, but the basement right you know it's yeah. like we had a semi-finished basement so it could just sit there but eventually it became a house to like colonies of creepy spiders and stuff i mean the thing was mon- i mean it's just so big I mean, and that's i think that's really fun is just thinking about it. i do not see outside of like the premium collector market i don't see another toy being made like that i mean that was just kind of just bonkers 
even even that line once they the next year they they're like hey we still want to make the, that i guess price point of a of an item mm-hmm. but they started doing things that folded up like they did the big the big uh shuttle or, or then the big tank thing where it was like oh we'll do it it'll, it'll fold up and then and then it'll only take up half of your closet it won't take up half of your bedroom floor right well and that was the thing with my parents they were like you know what disassemble it and you know you don't play with it and that's done so you know now i wish i would have kept those those things sell for like two three thousand dollars on ebay i mean like you know especially if it's complete but i mean where do where do you store something like that i mean they're just huge i bet you my cousins is still up in that attic somewhere probably buried probably probably disassembled but it's probably still up there you just gotta take a little trip you know be like <laughs> yeah i would seriously i don't i don't even know where i'd put it now be like honey we don't need a two-car garage it's a one-car garage i'm gonna put a toy that i'm not gonna use there instead or you know you could have one of your kids sleep on it you know throw some covers on the top of it I mean, it's, yeah. it really is that big it's ridiculous well i still got the jet i got the jets that go on and i don't know if you see them up there nice in the back of the room but so i've got the two jets to land on it but they sit they sit just fine on top of the microwave here at the office (laughs) well tim it's been a pleasure your book pac-man birth of an icon looks great thanks again for being on the show and we'll hope to keep in touch follow his work at tim l-a-p-e-t-i-n-o.com is that correct yep that's right or or you know in in the in the nerd aisle of target hopefully catch up on some of the stuff he's been doing so all right thanks tim thanks so much so great to be with you the Reflex Blue Show with Donovan Murray is hosted at 36point.com. Music by Dust Lab.